In our last uh, sermon on 1 Samuel, we began by revisiting chapter 8, where after God had clearly warned the people about the dangers of this common king they were demanding, the people responded to God's warning by simply repeating their demand. And then God concluded that chapter by telling Samuel very well, obey their voice and make them a king. And so we said that to the untrained mind, it might appear on the surface that it is man and his desires that are ultimately uh, sovereign in the relationship between God and man. What men wants is what men gets. But God corrects that misapprehension through the text of chapter 9 with an exceptionally pointed display of his sovereignty and his control over all the works of his hands. And so I said I was going to divide the text up into six spheres into which we see God exercising his all-wise counsel. I have modified that down for time's sake to, this, for, to uh, five spheres. Last time we looked at the first of those and we considered God's sovereignty in the area of common grace as manifested in the life of young Saul. Let me recap that briefly. Remember that God had promised Israel that He would give them a king of curses, right? A man of cruelty and warfare. And yet when the Scriptures introduce us to the man whom God has appointed for this task here in chapter 9, he seems to be the opposite of a future tyrant. We saw that he was obedient and submissive to his father. That he was a man of diligence and hard work as he spent three days meticulously searching for his father's animals. In addition to that, we saw that he was thoughtful and courteous because he only decides to return home after he is concerned that his father will be worried about him. And if that weren't enough, he even manifested some measure of humility. When Samuel offers him the seat at the head of the table, he says, Am I not the, the least in the, in the tribes of Israel? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So on the whole, God's Word painted a picture of an upstanding and a commendable young man. And yet we know from the rest of the Scriptures that he is lost and that he's about to descend into madness and into violence. And so we asked, how can this be? How can it be that someone with so much evil in their heart can go through such a large portion of their life walking what appears to be on a righteous path? And the answer given by God's Word was that God the Holy Spirit was operating in the life and heart of young Saul to make him into a man with enough commendable qualities that he could lead a nation into warfare and defend it, and yet he would still retain his Adamic nature such that he could function as a curse to rejected their God. God was, in other words, bottling up and letting loose the evil of Saul's heart to the exact degree that suited his plan for his life. Only the creator and the sustainer of man's heart is capable of such power. And so we ended last time with a sober warning that we must never mistake God's work in restraining the wickedness of men's hearts and the external appearance of righteousness that it might create for a true saving work of God in the soul. Christ's righteousness alone can save a sinner. Common grace righteousness, though it is necessary and it is useful for carrying out God's plan and redemption, is useless as a grounds upon which to stand before the Creator in His courtroom. And yet millions of sinners, potentially billions, have gone to their eternal fate contently trusting in this civic uprightness to save them. And so now with our so our pumps primed, if you will, by this first area of God's sovereignty. We're going to return now to chapter 9 and watch God continue to vindicate His godness. 
And so I want us to begin this morning with a consideration of the second sphere in which we see God exercising His sovereignty, and that is the sovereignty of God in nature. And we're going to see this in verse 3. Remember what's going on here in the big picture. God's working to give Israel a king. This is a big step forward in redemptive history. And in the past in the Scriptures, when God has initiated these major changes or developments in redemptive history, very often He has marked such occasions through a mighty act or a, a display of His power in a very grand and glorious way. You may recall that when He was going to raise up Abraham from among the nations, He appeared to him in visible form, and then He performed many miracles throughout His life. When He saved Israel from Egypt, He sent unmistakable and awe-inspiring signs of what He was doing through the ten plagues. When He gave Israel the land of Canaan, He rained rocks down from heaven and even made the sun to stand still. And that's just a small sampling of the great and mighty deeds of the Lord whenever He is uh, advancing redemptive history. In fact, God has such a track record of operating in this way that we're almost left saying that this is clearly the methodology that God uses to govern and advance the affairs of His world. When God wants to change things or to move things along, He comes in great, mighty, external acts of power. And in today's chapter... God has clearly stated His intention to enact a significant movement forward in the history of Israel. And so as a result, taking what we know from the rest of the Scriptures, we then come to this text and we ask expectantly, what, God, mighty acts and deeds are you about to perform for your great name? What grand and glorious signs are you going to perform to raise up this king? And we get our answer in verse 3 where we read this. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And we realize right away that this is not going to be a mighty act or a display of God's power in an extraordinary way. It's going to be a very different display of God's providence. This is not going to be Sinai all over again. God is not going to be raining fire from heaven or making rocks come out of the water or riding on the clouds of heaven to charge down the Philistines. Instead, He's going to begin this event with one of the most unremarkable occurrences that we've seen so far in 1 Samuel. A few donkeys find a hole in a fence, and they get out. And so right away, we are confronted with the fact that God's control and providences in this world are not limited to miraculous interventions in time, but they even extend down to the everyday movements of the animal kingdom. Now, someone may uh, say that managing the affairs of donkeys is kind of beneath God. Right? Doesn't God have more important things to be concerning Himself with? But consider how necessary it is that God do this. If these donkeys don't wander off, then Saul's father will not send Saul on a mission to find those donkeys, and Saul will not encounter Samuel, who is the only person in Israel right now who can anoint someone as king. Now, maybe someone could still object that God did not actually cause these donkeys to wander off. Perhaps God simply looked down and saw that the donkeys did wander off and then formulate a plan after the fact to try to take advantage of the circumstances that He was observing. In other words, someone might say that uh, the movements of the donkey were the source of God's plan rather than the result of it. And the clear testimony of Scripture would speak emphatically to the contrary. Because God has a long history of ordaining the actions of animals to accomplish His purposes. Consider this. Right after God created the animals back in creation, 
The Bible tells us that God brought the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. Right? God had named Adam as his vice-regent. He'd given him dominion over all things, including the animals. And therefore, Adam needed to know what each of the animals were that God had put in the world so that he could have dominion over them. And to do that, Adam needed to be near the animals. To fulfill God's plan, Adam needs to be near the animals. And wouldn't you know it, God was very lucky. Because all of the animals just so happened to abandon what they were doing across all the different territory of which they were scattered and all walked to Adam right at the exact same time to fulfill God's purposes. Of course not. The text says that God brought the animals, moved the animals to Adam. He rules. He controls. And that's just the beginning of God's sovereign displays of His control over the animal kingdom. He doesn't stop there. When God knew that He would destroy the world in the flood, He caused two of every kind of animal to abandon, once again, their environments, just like He did with Adam, and come to the exact spot on the earth where Noah was building an ark. When Jonah was drowning in the depths of the sea, just picture it, he falls into the water, and he's now sinking toward the bottom of the seabed. It's very deep. And yet a massive fish happens to swim to the exact depth where Jonah is and open his mouth and swallow the man so that he might be preserved alive to go on to Nineveh. God caused a ram to wander up to the top of Mount Moriah and attempt to pass through a thicket and get stuck at the exact moment when the angel of the Lord had just stopped Abraham from plunging a knife into Isaac's heart. He caused a fish to swallow a coin so that Peter might be able to catch the fish and take out the coin at the exact moment that Jesus had been teaching his disciples about the freedom of the sons of the kingdom. He caused a rooster to crow three times and to time those crows in such a way that they would cease at the exact moment that Peter had just finished his third denial of the Lord Jesus. And that's just in the animal kingdom. Time would fail us to enumerate all of the ways that God controls the wind and the waves and the sea and the sunshine and the rain and many other aspects of the kingdom of nature. God wields nature at His disposal. Now, in some of the cases of what I just mentioned, God calls the animals to act contrary to their natural inclinations in a miraculous way, but in other times they did exactly what they would normally do, and yet in both cases, God is the one ordaining their, their actions to accomplish His will. And so what God is showing us is that He's not simply the God of miracles, nor is He the God who merely creates the world and then steps back and allows it to carry on its course. Instead, God is the one who controls all the functions of the natural world through His ongoing wisdom and might. Job 12 says this, But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will instruct you. And the fish of the sea will declare it to you. Who among them does not know that it is God who has done this? In His hand is the life of every living thing. You see, God ordained the movements of these donkeys. Now, we get to see that it was God who was doing it because we are reading the narrative from sort of a big picture perspective and we get sort of a behind-the-scenes look. But think about the movements of the donkeys from the perspective of someone who was living through it in real time. You can just imagine. Kish wakes up one morning and he goes out to his work and he discovers that his donkeys have wandered off. Now put yourself in that position because you may, you may not have donkeys, but you've probably been in similar circumstances. You know that in his mind, 
the frustrations began to kick in right away and the anxiety cranked up and he probably started moving around a lot quicker trying to find them and he was probably muttering under his breath about those stupid donkeys and how they're always doing these kinds of things. And now how are we going to get everything done that we need to get done on the farm today? And whenever things like that, those kind of providences come our way in the kingdom of nature, is that not very often how we respond? I know it has been for me. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had to confess to some of the men uh, my failings in this area with respect to the actions of one of my animals in particular. But then as I thought through this text, as I was preparing to preach it, I thought, you know, that's the response of an unbeliever. The unbeliever does not confess that all of the affairs of the kingdom of nature are ruled over by the wise counsel of God, that no animal can move, that no storm can come through, and that no household item can break down and stop working, that God did not preordain and purpose to take place. And so for the unbeliever, they find themselves, even if they confess in the existence of a God, functionally, they find themselves living in a world that is uncontrolled and that perpetually frustrates them. And so the only tool that they have left to cope with this is grumbling and complaining. They have no control, and neither does anybody else. And so complaining and talking about, well, this, this shouldn't have happened, and this is the way that things should have gone, at least lets them feel like they have a small measure of control of their environment. But brethren, that cannot be how we respond to the providences that come to us in the created universe, to the way that things play out in our own affairs. Because a man that has been gripped by the conviction that God is in control of his creation, when he or she meets with an unexpected providence, will have an increasing spirit-wrought self-control to submit themselves to that providence and to say, you know what? God has brought this to pass, and therefore it is the best thing that could have happened to me in this situation. That is the effect that this doctrine of God's sovereignty in the affairs of nature ought to have on us, a dramatic reduction in grumbling. Kish had no idea that when he discovered that his donkeys were wandering, that it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord to make his son a king. That's the sovereignty of God in the affairs of nature, as seen in this text. Next, consider the third area of God's sovereignty, and that is the sovereignty of God in man's decisions. Now, God's providential hand in the wandering of the donkeys is enough to get Saul moving in the direction of Samuel and out of his home. But it's not enough in and of itself to bring the two of them together. Because after three days of searching, Saul is unable to find the donkeys, and he thinks it's time to return home. And if that happens, then guess what? Saul and Samuel will not meet together, and there won't be an anointing as king. But what is it that stops Saul from going home? It's the words of his servant. The servant says this in verse 6, Behold, there's a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Now I want you to notice two things about the servant that had to happen in order for him to be able to convince Saul not to go home. Two things. First, the servant had to know that Samuel was in this city. Now, that information did not come to him by a special act of divine revelation. There were no dreams and visions by which he was told Samuel's location. So then how did he know it? 
Well, in contrast to Saul, who last time we saw was not a man of heavy religious conviction, it appears that the servant is a man of religious conviction. And that not only does he seem to know Samuel, but he seems to know him so well that he's familiar with his travel habits and his patterns. This is not Samuel's hometown. So it's not like everybody in Israel just knows that this city is the place where Samuel lives. No, he had to know that Samuel would be in that city on that particular day. And you can only know that if you are intimately acquainted with the workings of someone's life. So the servant in the past, prior to this episode, had chosen to follow Samuel's ministry. And because he chose to do that, he was then in a position to be able to stop Saul from going home by telling him where Samuel was. Now, do you think that was just a coincidence? Don't you think that God had a purpose in having this young man choose repeatedly to follow Samuel, to attend his sermons, to be acquainted with his travel, so that he could be used for this very occasion? Of course that's the case. But that only works if God has an intention and a power in the servant's life and decisions prior to this point. But that's not all. Because we don't just see God's sovereignty in the servant's decisions in decisions that he made prior to this text, but even in decisions that he makes in this text. Because in verse 6, the servant makes a choice to open his mouth and mentions Samuel. That may seem obvious, but, but think about it. Even if he had been a diligent follower of Samuel, and he knew that Samuel was in this city, if he does not choose to then say something about it at this moment, then all of his previous followings of Samuel would be for nothing, at least for the purposes of this episode. Now, as, as these two are talking, was God just sitting back and really hoping that the servant would happen to remember where Samuel was and then say something about it? Was God watching going, ah, oh no, Saul is about to go home. He just said that he's going to go home. And I know that that servant boy knows that Samuel is here. Oh, please let him say something. Let him open his mouth. Oh, he did. Okay, good. That was a close one. Is that the position that God is in? when it comes to dealing with the affairs of men. Of course it's not. And we see that very clearly in the next verse. Because even though the servant does mention that Samuel's in the city, Saul almost gets them to go home again anyway. He says to the servant, But if we go, what can we bring to the man of God? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to him. So in other words, Saul says, Well, that's great that there's a man of God in the city, but we've got nothing to give him. So we are still going to have to go home. And wouldn't you know it, the servant just so happens to have made another decision prior to this moment that happens to allow God's plan to keep advancing. For the servant says, here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God. So you see, even before they had left to go on this journey, the servant boy decided to go get a coin and bring it with him. Now, when he made that decision... Was he thinking that it was going to go to Samuel, that the coin would go to Samuel? Of course not. He probably thought, you know, we're going to be out traveling. We may need to buy some bread. I'll probably just grab this coin as a safety measure in case we happen to need it. But because he made that decision, Saul is convinced to keep moving to the exact spot that God has purposed for him to arrive at. And do you see how many times God's providence is at work in just this servant's decisions? But we're not done witnessing God's work in the decisions of men. Because as soon as they then begin climbing the hill to go up to this city, wouldn't you know it, 
There are some young maidens who happen to be coming to get water at this exact moment as well. Now, why do we need young maidens to come and tell these two about Samuel? The servant has already said that Samuel is in the city. So what do the maidens add to the text? Well, notice what they say in verse 12. After Saul and his servant ask the maidens if Samuel is in the city, the maidens respond by saying this, He is. Behold, he's just ahead. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today. Now, the emphasis there is on the hurry part. In other words, it's great that Saul and his servant knew that Samuel would be in the city and that the servant had chosen to bring that piece of money so that they could give it to Samuel. But if Saul and his servant had kept walking at the same pace at which they were currently walking, they would have missed Samuel as he entered the city. And by the time they got there, where would Samuel be? Of administering the sacrifice and engaging in the meal. And knowing what we know about Saul, what do you think Saul would have said? Well, it looks like we missed Samuel. He's already administering the sacrifice. I'm not going to interrupt him, and I'm sure not going to sit around here for the next eight to ten hours and wait upon him. And so guess what? There would have been no meeting between Saul and Samuel. But these women just so happened to need water at the exact moment that Saul and Samuel were, or Saul and his servant were arriving to tell them to hurry up so that they could get to the city exactly at the moment that Samuel did. And what do we read as the result of all this? In verse 14, So they went up, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming toward him on, their way, on his way to the high place. You see, they caught him just in time. Now, do you see how every action and every decision that the characters of this story are making are perfectly woven together to accomplish exactly what God wants to happen? That's not chance. God is not the ultimate lottery winner in the universe where the actions of autonomous men that he has no sway over just so happen to all fall out exactly in line with the way that he desires them to. And so what does that teach us? That every decision that man carries out in the normal course of his daily life is under the providential counsel and arrangement of God Almighty. Now, I'm sure that most of you are more than well aware that this particular sphere of God's sovereignty has received no shortage of assault and hatred and unbelieving philosophizing by men from almost every religious and theological background in history. Almost no one would raise an objection to God being sovereign over the affairs of the animal kingdom or uh, the wind and the waves. It takes a special kind of heresy to deny God's sovereignty in those areas. Men will freely grant God control over there. But where men get upset and bent all out of shape is when you bring that same aspect of who God is into contact with the most intimate aspects of their own lives, their will. And so when the Scriptures tell men, or when you or I tell men, that God has purposed and decreed the decisions and activities of men throughout history, very often, if you're talking to somebody, you'll see that's the point where their demeanor starts to change. And people who on the surface were as nice and respectable and calm as you could possibly hope for, all of a sudden start to get a little worked up. And they get a little bit upset. And rather than considering who God is, what happens? That's when the objections start coming out. What about my free will? How is that just? 
God can't truly love us, and we can't truly love God unless we're autonomous. You're making God the author of sin. Your God is a monster. He's a divine rapist. That belief makes men into meaningless robots. How many of you have heard those objections before? They're everywhere. But I want to ask those of you sitting in this room today, when you read a text like this, and you see God clearly revealing that He is the one who is bringing all of these events to pass, and that that means that man's decisions fall under His sovereign decree and His predetermined ordination, where does your mind go at first? Even if you believe it's true, because the Bible says it, does your mind still quickly move to all of those objections as you start to try and find ways to reason yourself out of them? If you do that, then you are still approaching this issue from the wrong perspective. You're approaching it from the perspective of man. What does all this mean for man? What does this mean for the creature? And we can consider those things secondarily. But we've got to train our minds to think biblically. And so let me ask you this. Where does the emphasis of the text lie? Does the text seem overly concerned to explain to you the servant's free will and to try to reassure you that he's actually not a robot even though God's sovereignty seems to be behind all of his decisions? Is the text bending over backwards to try to reassure human readers that the maidens have not been wronged by an unjust God who controls whatsoever comes to pass? Is that where the text's emphasis is? No. The focus is on the magnificent wisdom and power of God Almighty in bringing all of these things to pass for His own purpose and His own glory. And that's where your mind ought to go right away to the praise of the God who with such marvelous wisdom is controlling all of these things for His own glory. Now you might say, yeah, but even after I've considered all of that from the perspective of God and His glory, I still would like to know how do I answer all of those objections? Will you do so in the exact same way that the Apostle Paul did? In the context forth that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the Israelites leave Egypt, and then God turned around and punished Pharaoh for the hardness of his heart, Paul recognizes that men are going to have a problem with that. They're going to stand up on their hind legs, and they're going to start screeching to the heavens in protest. And so he wrote in Romans 9, you will say to me, he knows what they're going to say, how can God still find fault in men for who resists his will? And then Paul proceeds to satisfy the carnal mind that hates God by explaining to him all the mechanics of exactly how a decree issued in eternity past interfaces with the decisions of man in time. No. He tells them to shut their mouths and to be quiet before God. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? That is the proper position epistemologically, in terms of knowledge of the creature before his creator, silent before God, leaving alone the things that he has hidden in his secret will and worshiping instead on the basis of what he has revealed. And so this morning, I'm not going to give you anything more about the sovereignty of God and man's freedom than the Apostle Paul does. It's right here in the text. It's woven all throughout redemptive history. God simply puts it in front of man, and to the unbeliever, he says, deal with it. Repent and submit yourself to my wisdom and not your own. And to the believer, he says, come and marvel. Look at the marvelous feast I have prepared for you to consume. And so, brethren, the text that we are looking at today it might seem like a series of very small events. 
right? A servant uh, deciding to follow Samuel's ministry and to pick up a coin before he leaves his house. And some young girls walking down the hill to get water. But God's revealed this to you for a reason. Because He wants you to see the very grounds upon which you can have confidence that all of the actions, decisions, and events of your life have meaning and have purpose. The person who denies God's sovereignty over the decisions and affairs of men, very often, if you listen to them, and I've listened to them for hours, they do so because they think that they, if God decrees our actions, then our actions are meaningless. And so they think they're defending the meaningfulness of what happens in time. But it's literally the opposite. They've got it backwards. How does anything in the universe have a meaning? Because God defines a meaning for it by virtue of His creative act. If an event can happen outside of God's decree, then there's nothing to ground objectively the meaning of that event. And the only thing left for it is for man to look back upon the event after the fact and apply his own subjective meaning to it after he has interpreted it. The best thing that you could say from God's perspective is that he comes along behind the events of time and he tries to make something meaningful come out of them. But the events themselves were meaningless when they took place because somehow they came into existence outside of God's decree and outside of His will. But it's just because our actions are part of God's decree to glorify Himself that we can be assured that every one of them has a purpose, is significant, and has been designed by God Himself to glorify His own name. Now, do you think that Saul's servant or the girls in the text thought that their little decisions had a large degree of substantial meaning and purpose. Probably not when they made them. They probably didn't think much of their decisions. And yet God is showing us that they were incredibly significant because they formed just one of the stones laid in the historical pathway that leads to the arrival of the Messiah. Now your decision to mow the grass on Friday instead of Saturday or to get two packs of chicken at the grocery store instead of three, is not going to necessarily be recorded in inspired revelation with a, a behind-the-scenes look and commentary on how that plays into the big picture of uh, God consummating the kingdom in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can be assured that every one of them is significant and has meaning from the good pleasure of the God of the ages. And so I want you to take comfort in what God is showing you today. There is meaning and there is purpose in this universe. I know very often the seeker-sensitive movement plays on people's need for meaning and purpose. I get that. And there's abuses of that. But we do need meaning. And we do need purpose. God's created that within us. And He's given it to us by His own providential control of all the affairs of time. Fourthly, we see the sovereignty of God in Revelation. This will be scattered throughout verses 15 to 20. So far we've seen God's sovereignty exercised in three spheres as He's working to bring Saul and Samuel together. But now we're going to see a fourth means that he uses to achieve this end. And it is his use of special revelation in the unfolding of history. In verses 15 and 16 we read this. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Now those verses do two things for us. First, they confirm our interpretation of what has already happened so far. Namely, they show us that before the donkeys ever left Kish's farm or Saul left to go looking for them, before the servant decided to bring a coin 
or before the maidens chose to go get water, that it was God who was orchestrating all of these events in order to bring Saul and Samuel together. And so it's almost like God, I've used this analogy before, but it's so beautiful, I, I like to bring back to it again and again. He's literally like pulling back the curtains of eternity and giving us a little bit of a glimpse behind. And he's saying, you see those ordinary events, those ordinary things that you guys don't think about for more than a second? I did that. That was me. That's my counsel standing behind all of those things. And so we have God's own authoritative claims to sovereignty over these events. But the second thing these verses do for us is they show us that God's not limited to disposing of the affairs of creation from behind the scenes. Or we might say, He's not limited to using secondary causes only to interact with time, but that He personally acts in time. Because here, God speaks directly to Samuel, and He tells him what He plans to do through everything we've seen so far. And this act of revelation to Samuel is just as necessary to the accomplishment of the purpose of this text as the wandering of the donkeys or the servants' decisions about the coin. How so? Well, guess what? Samuel is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And in chapter 8, God told Samuel and the people of Israel that he was going to raise up a king. But he didn't tell him who. He didn't give him a name. And so Saul left his father's house to find the donkeys. Samuel was just as ignorant that Saul was the man who was going to be king as Saul himself was. And so God could have perfectly arranged all the movements of the donkeys and the maidens and the servants in order to bring Saul and Samuel together at an exact moment in time. But if He does not reveal to Samuel that Saul is to be anointed as king, then when the two meet up, they're going to have a conversation about maybe some donkeys. They're going to get resolution to that, and then they're going to go their separate ways. And there's going to be no anointing, no kingship at this point. So you see, God's act of revelation to Samuel is another cog in the machine that keeps this whole story moving. And what we can see is that that's actually the consistent pattern of God's working throughout history. God is not the God of the deists who creates the world and then leaves it and never interacts with it. He is the God of transcendence and eminence. He is exalted above His creation, but He also is the God who interacts with that creation. But even though when we think of God's interaction with creation, our, we quickly go to and focus on the miracles, what we need to understand is that God's primary means of interacting with time and history directly is through revelation. Think about how many times God advances the plan of redemption through an act of self-revelation. Adam and Eve sin. And God responds by coming to them and revealing that not only is He creator and judge, but that He's also Savior. And through an act of revelation of the coming Messiah, He sets the course for the coming of the seed of the woman and for the basis of the faith of all of the saints who would trust in that revelation in every age. Where would history stand today if it had not been shaped and its course had not been cut out by God's initial act of revelation of the Messiah to our first parents. God planned to destroy the world, but He sustained the plan of redemption. How? By revealing Himself to Noah, what was coming, and then telling them that He has to build an ark to save Himself and His family. After the nations have walked in darkness for millennia, God's plan is to create a unique people from whom the Messiah will come, and when He's ready to do that, how does He initiate it? He reveals Himself to Abraham. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before Me and be blameless. 
There is no Father Abraham if there is no act of revelation of God to Abraham. When Herod sought to end the plan of redemption by having all the infants of Bethlehem slaughtered, what does God do? He comes to Joseph in a dream and reveals it to him. And as a result, the Christ was saved and then called out of Egypt in fulfillment of prophecy. When the ascended Christ planned to send his gospel to the Gentiles, what does he do? He appears, he reveals himself to Saul on the road to Emmaus and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Over and over again, God advances the course of history through revelation to carry out his purposes. He is the God of revelation and he is the God of revelation in time. And with what marvelous wisdom does he reveal himself and so plan and control to whom and when he reveals himself as to accomplish exactly what he has decreed from eternity past. That's the fourth area that we see God's sovereignty, His revelation. And fifth, and finally, we see the sovereignty of God in sanctifying grace. In sanctifying grace. We began by examining God's sovereignty in common grace. But as we come to the end of the chapter, we see that God has been acting and working in another man's heart, but in a way that is quite different from the work that He did in the heart of Saul, and that is the man Samuel. Now, to see this, recall what we've seen of Samuel's life so far. He labored through 20 years of spiritual apathy from the people faithfully. And then God used him as the human instrument through which the Philistines were defeated. And then after the Philistines were dead, Samuel was the one who led a revival in Israel and went, uh, spent decades preaching, teaching, judging, and serving the people. From his birth all the way through his life, he had done nothing but serve this people and give himself to the well-being of the nation. He could say, as the Apostle Paul did, I have been poured out as a drink offering in service of these people. And yet after all that, at the end of his life, the people come and they let him know that they're not satisfied with his leadership and that they would prefer to have a different human leader to rule over them. Now Samuel was clearly upset about this. And you can see that because he went and cried out to God about it, and God had to respond by telling him, no, it's not you that they've ultimately rejected, it is me. God would only have to reassure Samuel of that uh, unless if he had not interpreted their actions as a direct assault against himself. Samuel is a man. He has fallen, and therefore he is subject to the same temptations to bitterness and anger and resentment and grumbling, just like everybody else. And yet, unlike Saul, he was truly spiritual. He was born of the Spirit of God. And so as he wrestles with God in prayer, and as he pours out his bitterness and his frustration before the Lord of glory, God does for him exactly what Christ Jesus promised he would do for all of his saints. And that is, he gives him the effectual power of the Holy Spirit to put to death that sin and that grumbling and to put on righteousness. And that was back in chapter 7 and 8. Then we come to this chapter and we see the fruits. We see the results of God's sanctifying work in Samuel. Because in verse 18 of this chapter, Samuel comes face to face with the man that he knows has been decreed by God to replace him as the leader of this nation. And if Samuel were like Saul and his inward man were never changed, then when he meets this person who's been chosen to replace him, how's he going to respond? With anger, with bitterness, with resentment, and with malice in his heart. Consider, how did Saul respond when he met the man 
who he knew had been decreed to replace him. He spent the rest of his life in a paranoid, murderous rage trying to subvert God's eternal decree. There was no sanctifying grace in his heart. And yet here, Samuel meets some of the man who will take his place. And how does he respond? Verse 22. Samuel took Saul and his young man. And he brought him into the hall. And he gave him a place at the head of those who had been invited. And Samuel took, said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it, and he set him before Saul. And Samuel said, See what is kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. In other words, Samuel gives Saul a place of honor at the head of the table, and then he proceeds to dine with him in harmony. Reminds you a little bit of, uh, of what's going to come with David and Mephibosheth, doesn't it? Now, how can he respond in a way that Saul will fail to do later on? Samuel's a mere mortal. He does not have any more inherent power or control over sin in and of himself than any other man. The difference lies not in the man. The difference is that Saul is a vessel of wrath fitted for destruction, while Samuel is a vessel of glory that has been prepared by the potter beforehand through all of eternity. And so God has worked the grace of humility in Samuel's heart. And so Samuel can look at the rejection that the people gave to him and their betrayal, and he can confidently believe that the Lord is the one who brought it about for his own purposes. And because God is getting the glory, Samuel can rest content. And consider how God used this sanctifying grace in Samuel's heart to accomplish the ends that he was going for in this story. If God did not perform this work in Samuel's heart, if he didn't have the ability to renew Samuel's inner man apart from his permission to do so, then Samuel might have responded exactly as Saul is going to. He may have summoned up his pride. He may have said, I will not anoint this nobody to succeed me. Who is this kid who thinks that he can come and replace me after I have spent 50, 60, 70, who knows, years serving this people? He has no right to it. And if he had responded in that way, he wouldn't have done what? He wouldn't have anointed him king. And there would have been no transition from judgeship to kingship, at least not yet. So then... Five areas in which we see God displaying His sovereignty. I just want you to step back as we move toward the application and marvel at all the ways that God has interwoven all of these different spheres of His operation. In the decisions of man, in the movements of animals, in His work in the hearts of believers and unbelievers alike, He has done all of this just to fulfill the word that He spoke to Israel that He would give them a king. Brethren, this is God's world. It's His world. And all of the events of it have one purpose. That is to glorify the one who disposes of them according to His infinite goodness and His infinite wisdom. That's the purpose of all things. That's what this text teaches us. We have a wise God. Now, to the application. I have just one application. I want you to let this doctrine determine how you interpret the events of your life and so produce within you a submissive spirit and holy living. Now, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I want to bring it home here. What God has shown us ought to interpret the way that we, uh, sorry, ought to determine the way that we interpret the world around us. Believing that God is sovereign 
in a manner of propositional knowledge, I believe truth X in my head, that's not enough. Because there is usually a massive chasm between a confession that, yes, God decrees whatsoever comes to pass in time, and the ability of sinful people, even redeemed sinners, to bring that confession deeply into the heart so that it impacts our daily life and attitude. And the reason is that though we confess God's sovereignty over the events of time, very often when we actually start to think about specific examples of that and how that actually plays out, we usually turn our attention to events, either past or present, where we think that we can trace out a clear series of logically connected steps that lead us toward a clear, positive outcome that we can see and that we can articulate. For example, if we want to consider a great act of God's providence, very often we'll, we'll uh, turn back to the uh, sands of history and we'll recount the stories of some of the great missionaries of old, right? men like Patton or men like Hudson Taylor. And what we'll do is we'll go into their life and we'll trace out all the sufferings and all the bad things that happened to them. And then we'll say, but through those things, God brought about this. And it's usually the conversion of all of these people. And we say, look, see, that is God's providence. And that's true. Or if someone says to us, uh, show me an example in the Bible of, of uh, God's providential control over the events of time from Scripture. We'll turn to, for example, Genesis, and we'll say, hey, let's look at the life of Joseph. Sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused of sleeping with Potiphar's wife, unjustly thrown into prison, but God intervened. And He gave him the ability to interpret dreams and visions. And He interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And through that, He was exalted to the second highest position in Egypt. So that when God brought a famine into the world... And the line of Abraham was threatened to be cut off through the death of Joseph's family. Joseph's brothers were then forced to come to the man whom they had sold into slavery and beg for food from him so that Joseph could provide it to preserve, a line Abraham's, preserve alive Abraham's line. You see, we turn to those kind of examples because we think, I can trace it out logically and I can tell you exactly what the outcome of it was. Now, what if I asked you, or what if you asked me, to show you a providence of God in Scripture. And I said, okay, let's try this one. Segub fathered Jair, who had 23 cities in the land of Gilead. But Geshur and Aram took from them 60 towns. Now, there's a perfect example of God's sovereignty and God's providence. But you know you react differently to that one because you're immediately trying to go, who are those people and how do they connect to the bigger picture of what's going on in Scripture and how does this advance us toward the Lord Jesus Christ? See, when someone talks about something being providential, very often we have a, a special category of things that qualify as that. We prefer to think of the Josephs and the Moseses and the Pauls as our great examples. And they are all tremendous examples. But the drawback of always thinking of God's sovereignty through that lens is that it creates an unconscious bifurcation in our view of the world where we view some events as being the outworking of God's sovereignty, and others functionally, even though we never confess it, as being uh, sort of subject to chance. And therefore, those events, in our mind, functionally, very often become proper subjects for grumbling. Now, do you need proof of that? Think about a generally reoccurring providence in your life that you tend to complain about, that grates against your flesh. Now imagine the next time that this type of providence is about to come into your life that God were to pause time 
and he were to reveal himself to you, and then he were to explain to you what's about to happen, and then trace out for you how that providence is going to fit into the bigger picture of his plan for your life in order to bring you to glory. And then he hit resume on time, and then the providence comes. Would you complain right after it happened? If you're a Christian, I'm assuming you would say, no, no, I wouldn't complain. He just explained everything to me. And if that is the case, then that is proof right there that you functionally hold to two different types of providences because you're willing to change your behavior depending on which kind of providence you think that it is. When it's something you can trace out, you think that it's God's sovereignty and you respond with more willingness to submit under it. You're willing to bear up under it. But when it's not something that you can trace out, when it seems to be just random, some random occurrence throughout the day, your response shifts. And you can say you that you believe that God predestines all things as much as you want to, but the functional proof is in the living out. So very often we have this bifurcated view of God's providence and it arises from a spiritually immature component of our faith. We're not willing to walk by faith and not by sight. If we can't see, then we treat the providence differently. So then how do you strengthen and grow your faith? So that you do view each and every providence as being the same in substance as all the amazing examples that we talk about from history or in the Scriptures. It's very simple. Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Let me explain. Just as it's important for married folks who are daily dealing with marriage to have a stock of verses about marriage hidden within their heart, and just as it's important for children to have portions of God's Word that directly address their duties to their parents hidden away in their heart, so it is important for a man or a woman who's about to encounter providence in their day to have verses that address providence hidden away in their heart, a stockpile of God's revelation about how we are to interpret uh, the things that come about us at a moment's notice. And the reason you have to have that is because you need it ready. Because when those providences come that you are not inclined to like, how quickly does your flesh react to those providences? Do you have a 10-minute gap where you're emotionless in response to the providence? No, you don't. Your flesh begins to react immediately. And if you don't have a stockpile of God's Word addressing these subjects and how you are to respond to the events of your life that is able to then be very quickly accessed, if you can't beat your flesh to the punch and sort of hack away at that growing weed of grumbling, then you're going to falter. But here's where we run into another issue that needs some correcting. Because when people are told, hide God's Word in your heart, What's the first thing that comes to everybody's mind? Word for word, scripture memorization of your favorite English translation of the Bible. And that's a good thing to do. But because that's the only method that anyone ever seems to consider in order to hide God's Word in their heart, when they set out to do it, what portions of God's Word does everybody go to? The Psalms, the Proverbs. Some of Paul's epistles, short sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. Why do we start there? Because we're focused on memorization and what types of things are the easiest to memorize. Short, bite-sized, complete thoughts that we can easily digest in 10 to 15 words. Things like God is love, 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. For the Son of God did not come to serve, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You see, we like those very short, snippety portions of God's Word because they're easy to memorize. And those are great, but do you know what that functionally means? That nobody is walking around with Second Chronicles, Ezra, or Judges hidden away in their heart. Because who's going to give themselves to memorizing 47 consecutive verses of narrative telling you just one story? And that's just one chapter within one book. Who's going to possibly give themselves to that? Almost nobody. And you know what? I don't think that memorization is the primary method that God intends for us to use to hide away some of those portions of God's Word and to have them impressed upon our consciences. And when it comes to a subject like God's sovereignty or providence, where do we often, most often, see vivid, vivid picture illustrations of His sovereignty played out? It's in those longer narratives, isn't it? And so if all we're focused on is word-for-word memorization, then there's going to be wide swaths of God's revelation that He's given to us to teach us so that we might be equipped to engage in spiritual warfare, but which is useless to us because we don't even try to impress those portions of Scripture on our heart. You may read them in your Bible reading plan for the year, but I'm talking about impressing it on you. And so it's great that God has given us direct didactic passages that teach us about His sovereignty over all things. Ephesians 1, right? He predestined us for the adoption of sons according to the kind intention of His will. Romans 9, what if God, uh, desiring to show His wrath and to make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His grace and glory upon vessels of mercy which He has fitted beforehand, right? It's, it, those are wonderful short sections about providence and sovereignty that you can put on your heart. They're easy to memorize and thank God for them. But if we don't meditate on other genres of revelation and we don't take the time to impress them upon our conscience and what they reveal about God and His purposes to us, then guess what? We're fighting a spiritual battle with one arm when God has equipped us with two. We are unnecessarily limiting our arsenal of weapons with which to augment our faith and produce a real heartfelt submission to God's will. And so the final exhortation with all of that being said is this. Use this passage. Impress its essential content upon your heart. I'm not asking you to memorize all 27 verses in a row of 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you do, that's great. You get an extra badge. But you need to impress the content of it. The essential teaching. Who are the characters? What is the essence of what God does? What does it reveal to me about the Lord? And you do that through simple meditation. Not mystical meditation, but through turning it through your mind again and again. And guess what? If you do that, you're going to start to notice something. That as, and I have seen this borne out in just the past couple of months in my own life, that as you interact with God's providences, you'll notice that your mind and your heart begin to bring those portions of God's Word to the surface much faster. You don't even have to consciously, usually, reach down and grab it, especially as you get better and better at it. And you start thinking to yourself, you know what? If God really did predestinate that servant boy to grab a coin before leaving home and that some donkeys would walk out of a fence and that some girls would need water at three in the afternoon, then whatever has just happened to me is no different. It's no different in substance. And how foolish would it have been for me to complain about some donkeys wondering if I had known what God was going to do through it. I may not have the final end of this providence spelled out explicitly for me. But I know that this providence is no different in substance than anything else that I've read about and meditated upon in God's Word. And so you know what? 
I'm going to respond exactly the way that I think those characters should have responded in the stories. With humility, and submission, and contentment. That is how we make use of God's Word and the revelation of His sovereignty over all things. It ought to produce a content people. It ought to produce a humble people. It ought to produce a people who don't grumble and complain. I know it's hard. I know it takes time. But write His Word upon your heart that you might not sin against Him. He brings all things to pass for our good. Let's trust Him and let's walk in His ways. Let's pray. So as we prepare for the Lord's table, I want you to imagine a small Jewish boy living in the first century, probably spending most of his time around his mother in the home, but doing the things that little boys do, going outside, playing, throwing rocks in the creek, falling and scraping his knee, climbing trees, the the typical things that young boys do. But that little boy, he's got a mom and a dad. He's more than likely got brothers and sisters, and he learns to get along with them. He has to be taught to to get along with them and to be kind to them, to treat them the way he would want to be treated. He grows up, he uh, moves into his teenage years, he becomes a young man, and as he continues to make what we call this development, this growth from childhood into manhood, one day he's captivated by a, a teacher who's been traveling around the countryside teaching and crowds are beginning to follow this teacher. And one day that teacher, as the crowds come to him expecting some teaching, one day that teacher looks at him and he says, Judas, I want you to follow me. And Judas thinks, me? Of all of these people, it seems like he's only chosen 12. And I'm one of them. Okay, I'll follow you. And so he begins to follow this teacher and eventually he's sent out to preach and He preaches the gospel of the kingdom and he casts out demons and he heals those who are sick. And then one day, it seems, one lavish outpouring of love upon this teacher just hits Judas the wrong way and he can't stand it. This man, he's just taking too much worship. That money could have been spent for the poor. And so he goes and he makes a deal with some religious leaders to betray this teacher into their hands. He leads them to him. Jesus is arrested. He's beaten and he's crucified. And we say, what a story. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was God who gave the mother of Judas conception. God raised him up. God put every breath in his lungs, put every beat in his heart. Kept him safe, preserved him, kept him alive through the dangers of childhood and manhood and made sure that he made it all the way to that point 
that he kissed our Savior on the, on the cheek. And he betrayed him. What is that? That's God's providence. Bringing us a Savior. Even through the actions of lawless men and wicked men. As we come to the Lord's Supper, our attention is always on the crucifixion. But again, just like we heard, this is not an event that just comes out of nowhere. Everything, every single detail of human history led down to those nails going into those hands on that day. So that that gospel could be preached in this room to these people. And not to stop here, but to continue until ultimately we will be able to spend our eternity surveying these events and we'll just worship. But the crucifixion of Christ is, is the supreme example of the providence of God working to bring men to Himself. And so, as the elements are passed, go to the cross. Find a thread at the cross and just begin to trace it in God's providence. What brought that man there? And what has brought me here? And to worship God. And then we'll, we'll eat and drink together.